0: Hello. Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. I'm the host and today here we are on July the 12th, 2020. We're still in the middle of the COVID shutdowns. Um, it's a hot, hot day here in Western North Carolina. It's a really nice day. It's beautiful outside. Um, we've had some interesting um, weather this week. We've had a lot of rain and all that kind of stuff, but it's been kind of nice To get that rain cool things down a little bit Um, it's been interesting over at my house we I was sitting at my desk on Thursday morning uh, been accustomed to people walking their dogs and wandering back and forth in my field of vision and I thought I saw a very large dog and turns out on second look that it was not a dog at all it was a bear and he was decided to mess around with my neighbor's trash and So I got to watch him for about 10 minutes messing around out there. And so it's always fun when you see things like that When you get different sort of things in life. Um, But I misperceived it. The first time I saw it, I thought it was, literally just thought it was a big old dog. found, nope, that's not what it is at all. So we've got to pay attention. We've got to, to look at things closely. We've got to study them and we've got to think about them. Um, too often, I think right now in the world, we, we're reacting emotionally to things, we're seeing things, and we're, we're coming to conclusions about things, and those conclusions need a little more thought, they need us to think a little more deeply about them, to see what's actually going on. I think there's a lot that's hidden in the world today, and I think that we need to, to be people who, who know the times and understand the times, which is an Old Testament idea. We need men who can understand the times, because I think we have to pay close attention. There's a lot going on, and I think there's still more to come as far as what's going on, but but things that are hidden, I believe, are going to be revealed. So it's it's an interesting time, but this whole idea of perception is something that's been kind of bugging me all week. I've been thinking about that, and then it has to do with uh, the parable in our uh, lesson today that Jesus tells um, about the sower who goes to sow seeds. This particular time, we're looking at the the version that's in Matthew's gospel because we're staying in Matthew's gospel. And so Jesus goes out and he speaks to the crowd and it says there were great crowds around him as he comes to the sea and he got into a boat and he sits down and then the whole crowd stood on the beach. And so Jesus, Matthew tells us, taught him many things in parables and one of them was this idea of the sower who goes out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them, and other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but they had no depth of soil. So when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew and choked them. Other seeds, however, fell on good ground and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then Jesus finishes that by saying, "He who has ears, let him hear." I've had occasion over the last 15 years to think about this parable a lot, and so it, it's one of those that sticks in my head, and I've sort of um, changed the way that I think about this parable on multiple occasions. I used to write a blog; it was a daily thing. There's a, there are daily readings and. The Episcopal Prayer Book, and so I used to write every single day about all the Old Testament, Epistle, Gospel, and the Psalm, and I wrote four or five hundred words every single day about the, those lessons, and the the purpose was to try and tie those things together and show that they all had a a, a same meaning that it was that it's one story, not not multiple stories that the Bible is. Is a unit and it should be read that way and that, that the Old Testament has no less validity and no less purpose and value than the Gospels or the the uh, epistles and so' it's, it's it's important for us to see those things together well this parable comes up a lot because um, it's in all three of the synoptic Gospels Matthew Mark and Luke and so you have to deal with it really regularly and so I've come to, to think differently about this parable over those 15 years. I think there's a different interpretation that we need to consider on this parable. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But, but I think there's, there's more to it than that. But then this, this whole, he who hears, has ears, let him hear, is the part that's really sort of jumped out at me, that Jesus says that. It's a really odd thing. For him to say, because he obviously wants them to do more than just hear that parable. He wanted them to, to understand the parable. But in the lesson that we read is only the first nine verses of chapter 13, and then it skips from uh, 9 to 18. And those nine verses are actually important verses, because what it is is the disciples are asking Jesus, Why do you speak in parables? Why do, why do you teach that way? Why not just kind of come straight forward and, and just teach things? And Jesus said, because there's, a, there's an interpretive thing going on there, that, that if I just come out and say something, you don't know it and understand it the right way. It's just facts and information. There's something more to be dug out. It requires some effort, but it requires something else. In verse 11, he says, Because it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them... It's not given. There's something necessary. More than just thought. There's the the insight, the wisdom, and the knowledge that comes by the Holy Spirit and only by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that people don't like about Reformed theology is the idea of election. That some people are elect to share in the heavenly uh, reward and others are not. And so when Jesus says things like this, that it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. And he says things like that on multiple occasions where it's obvious that he's saying that some, some are in and some are not. I don't like it any better than you do, but it's there and it's consistently there. And it's not just in the gospels. It's clearly in the epistles. It's it's not my favorite idea, frankly. I mean, if it were up to me, I would like everybody to get in. But what it tells me is there's there's more going on than meets the eye. There's there are mysteries that have yet to be revealed, things we don't know. And and what he tells us in another parable is 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 that don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all. Don't worry about uh, what's real and what's not it'll all be taken care of in the end and so what we're to do is we're supposed we're supposed to especially love one another brothers and sisters in Christ but we're supposed to do like he did which is to love the world and we're supposed to make him known to the world and we're supposed to love all those who are created in his image and that would be every human being And so there's a lot we don't know. And this parable kind of haunts me and it's haunted me over the last, I don't know, 40 years or so. Because there was a long season of time when I didn't follow the Lord. I was not interested in those things. I was interested in making money. I was interested in doing other things. And so there was a time in my life when I was in my teens when I was on fire for the Lord. Everything was about him. And then I drifted off into my own little world and, and followed after the desires that I had for myself and my own life and, and rejected what I thought that he was calling me to do and did my own thing. And so this parable was one that just absolutely haunted me was what, what was I? Was I the one that uh, didn't have much soil? Therefore, there was no depth. There was no root. It withered away, was I one of the seeds that fell among thorns of it grows up, but then it gets choked out by other things, and it's just really bothered. Me. And this whole idea of election, you know, when I was sort of going my own way, I was like, Well, maybe I'm not one who belongs in the kingdom. There's um, places in First John, in First John 4, John writes, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that's not of God hears not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's something different about God's people. It doesn't mean God's people aren't sometimes misled. It doesn't mean they don't follow after false prophets for a time. Certainly, we've seen that in our own day. We've seen people who follow after this one or that one and then find out that they're actually, no, they're not somebody you should have followed. They're not somebody you should have listened to. We, we like to have our ears tickled. We like to, to hear what we like to hear. We don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be told that sin is real and that we need to deal with things and work on things in our lives. We need to reevaluate some of the things that we believe about the world. We need to reevaluate things in light of the gospel. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of our minds. Too often we don't think critically about things and we we just react to things in in the natural rather than really asking the Lord to show us what's there. We live too much, but what Paul says is the flesh. Our Romans passage today is the first 11 verses of Romans 8 and and Paul is kind of following on the um, path that we were on last week with him when he talked about um, that, that the good that he wants to do, he doesn't do. He does the very thing he doesn't want to do. He approves the law of God, the word of God in his mind, but then there's something about it that he's incapable at some level, he says, of doing the things that I'd rather, that I want to do. And, and there's a huge truth in that for the natural man. There, we've got to not just have the spirit of God, we've got to live by the spirit of God. We've got to seek to to know what to do, and then allow the Spirit to live within us and guide our steps and cause us to become the people that the Word of God tells us we ought to become. There's a purpose for the Word of God, the law of God, because it, it, it helps us to know if we're following the Spirit of truth or not. Because God's not going to tell us to do things that conflict with His revealed will. And his spirit's going to guide us to live in such a way that we live by the revealed will of God. So Paul, in Romans 8, is continuing, and he says, look, in spite of that, in spite of the struggle within, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then goes on to say, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I know what that means. I, I know what it means in my own life. I'm sure everybody knows what it means in their own life. If if not, then you're Jesus. Because Jesus, remember, the first thing that he did once he heard the the, uh, voice from heaven at the baptism, what was the first thing he did? He went into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And he was tempted by things of the flesh. The first thing was, hey, you've been fasting 40 days. Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man, lives. Does not live by bread alone but by that. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting for Deuteronomy. And what he's saying is the father didn't tell me to do that. I heard your voice telling me to do it. And then the temptations are continuing with the pleasures of the flesh. Throw yourself down from the temple. Because the scriptures say that that he will catch you on the angels wings. And he says, no, don't tempt God. Quoting again Deuteronomy. And then finally, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, These will be yours if you'll just bow down and worship. Who wouldn't want those things, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to to have food suddenly after a 40-day fast? Who wouldn't want to see God do a miraculous thing and prove to you that if you're the Son of God, then do this because this is what Scripture says. Well, let's prove that. Because I don't, you know, there's doubt in the flesh, and you want to see God do that, and you want to have that. In your flesh, you want to see him do that. You want God to prove himself to you, and then ultimately, he offers him all the power of the world, and that's when he finally says, get behind me, Satan." He's going to receive all the kingdoms of earth, but he can't get it from anybody other than the Father and he can only get it by persevering and going to that cross, bearing sin, having sin judged in the flesh in order that he could receive those kingdoms permanently. Satan might have something temporarily but he doesn't have it permanently to offer only until death. And so Jesus was tempted in the flesh which tells me that it was capable of being tempted in the flesh. And then we see it again at the last night of his free life when he pleads with God that the cup would be taken from him. And so it, it required prayer, constant prayer for Jesus to live by the Spirit. And if it required constant prayer for Jesus to live by the Spirit, then it tells us that we probably need the A people of constant prayer, asking for all things, what it is that God would have us do. It it doesn't mean you grit your teeth and deny everything about the flesh. But it does mean that, that God's got a higher purpose for our lives. And in order to reveal him fully to the world, then he needs those who will follow not the desires of the flesh, but follow the spirit of God. That's really the sin in the garden in in the tightest little nutshell I can get it is, is that the appeal that Eve has is a fleshly appeal. I want to be like God. But it also says of the fruit of the tree that it was pleasing to the eyes and delightful to the taste. And so it appealed to her senses and to her flesh. And the serpent doesn't understand why She wouldn't avail herself of something that was so perfect. It has everything you could want. It's pleasant to the eyes, delightful to the taste, and desirable, he says, to make one wise. Well, from a serpent perspective, there's nothing at all wrong with that way of thinking. It's really not a problem because that's the level at which he lives. Those who are created in the image of God into whom he has breathed his spirit upon creation, though, it's different. We're not supposed to obey the voice of the flesh. We're supposed to obey the voice of God, the one who had said, don't eat of that tree. And so it was a fleshly decision that she made to eat of that tree. And so if if you want to bring back this Thing Paul's talking about in Romans 8 in, into the tightest little thing that I package I can get it in it's that it's that exact thing if God says no and your flesh says yes if you're living by the spirit you're going to say no there's, there's a good that's higher than the good I believe that I can attain from fulfilling that desire And that desire, Paul comes to at the end of this, is that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's got to become the aim of our lives. That's the Spirit's aim, is to please God, that we would be pleasing to Him. And we can't do that if we follow the desires of the flesh. If we set the one desire, which is to please God the Father who has redeemed us, saved us, and given us an eternal life, then that'll point us in a different direction. If that's our, our highest good, if it's the thing we're aiming at is to please God, then, then we'll see those other things as less desirable. So Paul's pointing us in that direction. What, what is it ultimately we want? And, and so we've got to deny these desires of the flesh—it's a matter of perception again. It's, it's it's listening to the voice of God. That's one kind of perception, but it's also seeing through the eyes of the Spirit within us. So it's always comes back to this perception thing, like where Jesus says, "He who has ears, let him hear." Like I said, He wanted them not just to hear the parable; He, he wanted them to perceive through hearing and through the visual that he gives of the parable of the sower, there's a perception issue. And so the, the way that I want to kind of wrap it up before we get to Jesus' interpretation of the parable and what I believe is to be our way of understanding and looking at that parable, um, we will reflect briefly on the Genesis passage. And that's Genesis 25:19 to 34. It's the story of the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau. And, and it's the story, the beginning story of the conflicts in their lives and the differences between those two men and also their parents. Even We're told these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And then he tells us that that um, Rebecca was 40 years old. Well, Isaac was 40 when he took Rebecca and, and she was barren. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. That really captured my attention because I believe that it's quite possibly the first time we're told somebody prayed. Because with Abraham, there was a direct communication between him and God. He spoke with God. Noah spoke and talked with God. Cain and Abel spoke and talked with God. But here, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I'm not saying that Abraham and Noah and all those others weren't praying, but this one seems like there's a little more distance in this. That the Lord granted the prayer, and Rebekah conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? And she then... Did the right thing. She didn't just ask that question randomly and say, "Isaac, what do you think?" She went to inquire of the Lord, so she prayed as well, because she knew the Lord had answered her husband's prayer for this. And and now it's confusing. God answered the prayer, but what does it mean that these two are struggling within my womb? And the Lord's response to her: Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God's constantly doing this, our preference. And and you see it in almost every society in the world that the oldest is the one who is the preferred one, the one who gets the, the inheritance. If there's a farm and it's not able to be broken up into segments, and there's more than one son, then the older one gets the property. And the younger one has got to he'll make a different way for himself in the world, unless the older doesn't want the, the farm. And so there's this, there's this long-established way of doing things in the world that, that prefers the older over the younger. But then in God's economy, that doesn't seem to be the case. Not always, certainly. You see that with David, the youngest of the bunch, We see it all along the way in Scripture that that God seems to prefer the younger over the older. Moses would have been the youngest in his family (laughs) because Aaron, his brother, must have been older because Pharaoh was killing children during that time. And so it's most likely that that Aaron was older than Moses, but God chose Moses. And, and, And it's inscrutable why God does these things. It's his own plan. And so after they were born, Esau comes out first. Um, he's called Esau because he had uh, red all over his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called him Esau, which is red. <laughs> and then after Jacob comes out, clinging to Esau's heel, and they called him Jacob, the supplanter or the deceiver. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore these children. And the boys grew, it says, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. There's a, something you should see in this, and what you should see is a sort of parallel between these two and Cain and Abel. Because Cain was the one who went and worked hard, worked in the fields, tended the fields, grew its crops, and Abel tended the flocks. And God preferred Abel's sacrifice. So you see, one is a quiet man and one is an active man. And then Isaac loved Esau because he hated his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So we know why Isaac loved Esau. We have no earthly idea why Rebekah loved Jacob. It's possibly, I guess, because God told her that word about the older serving the younger. And so, and once when Jacob is cooking stew. Esau comes in from the field and he's exhausted. This is so dramatic. Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Excuse me? What? Esau says, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Seriously? Seriously? You were hungry, you're exhausted, you're about to die, and so your birthright has no value to you? And Jacob, what a horrible brother. I'm exhausted, let me eat some stew. Only if you give me your birthright. Just, wow, wow. So it's what happens, right? So he swore to him and he sells his birthright to Jacob. And listen to the next sentence. He's about to die, remember? Then it says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and little stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. About to die? You got a little bread and some little stew? And you ate and drank and rose and went your way? You sold your birthright in that situation? Nobody, nobody, in this situation is perceiving things rightly two people did at one time because they were confused by what they saw Isaac sees his wife as barren and he goes to the Lord and he prays Rebecca sees these children struggling inside her and she goes and prays but after that this family is a mess a complete mess They're pitting one against the other, loving one more than the other, and whatever. And neither, nobody in this scene is a good guy. Time, however, in the action of God, changes that guy who was so callous that he, rather than giving his brother stew, asked for his birthright. God had already promised that he would have all these things, but Jacob couldn't wait. Jacob couldn't just trust the Lord and wait for the Lord to make these things come to pass. He didn't really believe it. And we see in another story we'll come across later in the next couple of weeks that his mother didn't really believe it either. They perceived things wrongly. And because they perceived things wrongly, they acted in horrible ways. And they wrecked the family. And Isaac was no better. So let's finish up this parable. Let's look at the last bit of this parable, which is Jesus' interpretation of it. And we know, if you know anything about it, you know what it is. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. That's what's sown along the path. So it's just empty words. Didn't really get it, just kind of landed there. I've certainly heard a ton of sermons that were probably really good that made no connection with me at all. And that's just gone to me. Second thing is, is that what the stuff that was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. If it's hard, even though it's wonderful to me, I don't want it. I was that guy. I believe that God wanted me to go into ministry way back. And I didn't want to do it because that was going to be a hard path. It was easier and more fulfilling and exciting to go and do something different. So I was the guy that that knows that. And then he says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Yep, guilty, that guy too. And then he says, what was sown on good soil? This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold in another 60 in another 30. I don't know. We don't know how fruitful we've been. What I do know is this about this story, about this parable, and that is I can see myself in every single one of those. And there's a reason for that. God's always working. If we continue to put ourselves in places where we can hear him, sometimes he has to put us in places where we can hear him because we're not willing to hear him. And so he's got to put us under pressure. He's got to put us in places where where we can finally listen to the word and we can begin to hear his voice as the voice of a lover, the voice of a father who wants the best for us. So what I would say to you is is that, that there's no judgment on the one who sows the seed, even though he's sowing so indiscriminately as to waste it. Because ultimately, it's the ground that has to be prepared in order to receive it. It's the ground of our spirit, the ground of our soul, and the working of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're not even aware of it, sometimes, is what makes us able to do that. So, if you just, if you're feeling like right now everything's dry, every you're not getting it, you're not getting much from anything. Keep on, persevere. Listen, pursue, and you'll find the breakthrough. It's there. It's waiting for you. And God will bring you up and raise you up. Perseverance matters, and I know that it does because he's the one that shows us perseverance in love for us. And so if right now it's not your highest good to please God with what you do, lay that before him today. We need to become people more of prayer. I'm going to close with the collect for the day, the prayer of the day. Oh Lord, we beseech you mercifully to receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Thank you for being on the journey with me. If you've got any comments or questions, please interact on the Facebook page. I look forward to being with you again next week.